Now, I draw your attention on this Sunday, the last of 2007, and just a day or two before the new year, to Paul's last letter, the second of his two letters to Timothy, his ministerial assistant, the last chapter of that letter, 2 Timothy. And though the bulletin has us reading just verses 6 through 9, we'll read uh, verse 1 through verse 9 and establish the context thereby. So, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Our Heavenly Father, a remarkable testimony by the great apostle to the Gentiles, which you have, by your Holy Spirit, seen fit to record forever in Holy Scripture. We want, O God, to enter into the mind and the heart of the Apostle Paul so that we, too, can be among those who will be able to say at the end of their lives, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. To that end, O God, we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in and through this your Holy Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. In this fourth chapter of the last canonical letter that Paul ever wrote, The Apostle is solemnly appealing to his young friend Timothy, still at the headwaters of his Christian ministry, to make the sacrifices a faithful service requires and to undertake his calling with determination, letting nothing stand in the way. To encourage him to make this maximum effort, Paul turns in verse 6 to himself and to his own example. At the very end of his life, The great apostle to the Gentiles looks back on his career as a Christian and a Christian minister upon what he has done as a servant and soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a life and what a service it was. He who can part from country and from kin and scorn delights and tread the thorny way, a heavenly crown through toil and pain to win. He who reviled can tender love repay. And buffeted for bitter foes can pray. He who upspringing at his captain's call fights the good fight 
And when at last the day of fiery trial comes, can nobly fall, such is a saint, and such the Apostle Paul. The unmistakable implication of his personal reverie is that Timothy should give himself without reservation to the work in the same unstinting way that Paul did, so that he will be able to say about his life what Paul could say about his own now that it was nearly over. That's Paul's simple argument. As he said in verse 1, Timothy should serve the Lord with the specter of the judgment day always before him. And now for Timothy's sake and for the sake of every servant of Christ, Paul pictures himself soon to face that judgment and shows Timothy what a privilege and no doubt what a relief it is to face that judgment with confidence, knowing that the work to which he had been called had been faithfully done. Familiar as we are with Paul's noble words, accustomed as we are to take it for granted that no one had a greater, light, a greater right to write them than did the Apostle Paul, we may fail to notice something very characteristic in the way he speaks of faithful Christian service and its ultimate issue. Clearly, as verse 8 indicates, Paul considers neither his own life nor its reward as peculiar to himself. And not only to me, he says, but to all who have longed for the Lord's appearing. What Paul is describing in his own case is a faithful, fruitful life of service, a life of accomplishment. The context of his remarks is a Christian's service. It is in that context. It is in regard to his calling, his work as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has fought, that he has finished, and that he has kept. We shouldn't think that Paul would have expected such words to be used of, say, the Christian workers he describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, whose Christian service was so poorly rendered, whose contributions to the kingdom of God were so inept, whose keeping of their charge so ill-considered and so half-hearted that their work is to be destroyed by fire on the great day, though they themselves will be saved, but only as those who escape through the flames. There are Christians who can say what Paul says here in 2 Timothy verse four, chapter 4, and there are Christians who cannot. Christians, real Christians, in both cases. And this is confirmed by Paul saying, that the crown of righteousness that he will receive will be awarded to him on that day. The word Paul employs here, the lexicographers and commentators inform us, suggests the idea of requital or reward. It's used this way often enough in the New Testament, as for example in Romans chapter 2 verse 6, God will give, the NIV says, that is, he will requite, repay to each person according to what he has done. The sense of the word, as Paul uses it here, is then confirmed by the phrase with which the statement begins. Now there is in store for me. Perfectly ordinary form of words in our ears, but in an expression which in that time had become almost technical in edicts of commendation, in which recognition for services rendered was bestowed on someone by an oriental king. Paul's using, in other words, a familiar form of words, 
to describe the reward received from his king for services he rendered him. In other words, Paul is not saying that he will have the reward of the righteousness of Christ or the reward of the forgiveness of his sins or the reward of entrance into eternal life when he stands before the Lord on the great day. He will have all of that to be sure, as he says often enough in his letters, but here he's speaking of something else. He's speaking of the reward that will be his for the faithfulness with which he served the Lord. And he speaks of other Christians in the same way. To describe someone as longing for the coming of the Lord is a beautiful way to describe a Christian life that must be faithful, earnest, consequential, fruitful. It's the life of somebody who lived in the active prospect of the appearing of Jesus Christ and the judgment day that would follow. It's the life of someone who lived fully aware that the Lord was coming again and making the most of his life and the prospect of what was going to matter to him on that day. What he is going to want to have done when Christ actually does appear and the judgment day looms before us all. No wonder that Paul should say such things in commending to Timothy his young assistant closer to the beginning of his Christian service than to its end. Commend to him a dutiful, hardworking, sacrificial, noble, productive life of Christian service. We connect here in a very important and a very personal way with Paul's teaching in many other places in his letters and supremely in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where the champion of free grace and justification by faith alone nevertheless asserts unapologetically that how he lives his Christian life and the faithfulness and zeal with which he serves the Lord will be taken into account in the Lord's judgment and reward of his life. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And that thought prompts Paul to go on immediately in the next verse to remark that the prospect of that judgment, that evaluation, that reward or that diminishment serves to, for him as an inspiration a goad to move him onward in his serving the Lord. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. We take up our calling and we discharge it earnestly, seriously, faithfully. So clearly is this Paul's meaning here in 2 Timothy 4. So unmistakably is he speaking of the greater reward that faithful Christians will receive for a greater faithfulness that some scholars of the more critical persuasion have denied Paul's authorship of these famous words precisely because Paul here speaks only of his success and not also of his weakness and because he draws attention only to his actions and not much more to God's actions. But of course it is Paul who speaks here. Paul, who throughout his letters emphasizes, as nobody else ever has or shall, that justification is by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ and not in any way, shape, or form 
is the product of our works, our behavior. But it is the same Paul who over and over again commends to every believer a life of consequential service in the kingdom of Jesus Christ with the promise that such a life will receive its due reward. Paul never thought either that free grace or that a Christian's continuing sinfulness, of which he is also brutally frank, that either one of those meant that a man or a woman could not serve the Lord faithfully and fruitfully, or that there was not a real and very important difference between Christians who served the Lord well and Christians who did not. Paul was the very last man to think justification by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ meant that the Lord did not care about how his followers lived their lives and would not take care to make proper distinctions between them according to their faithfulness, their zeal, their fruitfulness when he came to judge those lives. Paul is urging Timothy not to be among those who are saved though as through fire, but to be among those whose faithful and fruitful service the Lord Jesus will requite with a crown on the great day. And so Paul does not say here that Christ has fought, but that Paul himself has fought. Not that Christ has kept the faith, but that Paul kept the faith. Not that Christ has finished the course, but that Paul finished it. It would eviscerate Paul's statement to turn it into a confession of Christ's imputed righteousness. And it would undermine the very exhortation that Paul is making to a young man embarking on a life of Christian service. Paul's not talking to Timothy about what Christ has done for him. He's talking to Timothy about what he must do for Jesus Christ. Let no one take our crown in the proclamation of salvation by grace alone and justification by faith alone. Your peace with God is God's gift to you. Your righteousness by which you stand forgiven before the judge of all the earth is His gift to you. Your acceptance with God by which you become a member of His family, this too is the work of Christ for you and in you. His gift to you. Let it be true of us, what Robert Murray McShane said, it was, tr- was true of a ministerial friend of his, the Glasgow minister James Muir. Muir, McShane said, is imputed righteousness to the backbone. But let us at the same time be Christian faithfulness, Christian devotion, Christian service, Christian heroism to the backbone. The kind of noble service of the kingdom of God that is not, alas, to be found in every Christian life. This is Paul's appeal to Timothy and in him to everyone who aspires to a life of serving the Lord. There is a tension here and nothing can be done to alleviate it. Martin Luther said that in his day, if a preacher said in a sermon that salvation did not consist in our works or in our way of life, but it was the gift of God's grace... Some people took that to mean they could live lazy and ungodly lives. And on the other hand, if the preacher emphasized the importance of a godly and devoted life, others would just as soon be trying to build ladders to heaven. Well, it's not only in Luther's day that that problem surfaces. It surfaces in every day. 
Our hearts are so unreliable in respect to the relationship between free grace and a Christian's achievement, free grace alone and a Christian's full reward, our utter inability to save ourselves or even contribute to our salvation on the one hand, and our absolute responsibility to make something of our lives on the other, between Christ's atonement and the believer's attainment, I say we have so much difficulty with these two things and holding them together in our hearts and minds that this is perennially the key problem of Christian thought and life. We have simply to believe both. We have simply to practice both. But let there be no mistake about this. It is of Christ, the Christian's attainment that Paul is speaking here and it is of this attainment that I want to speak to you as the new year, the year of our Lord 2008, begins. And how ready is the Bible to summon us to higher things in life? How like our Heavenly Father, our great Captain, to care how we live and how we fight? How often the Word of God appeals to our sense of duty, our sense of honor, our desire to do great things for the one who has done infinitely great things for us. What else could be meant by the astonishing summons, one might have thought the impossible summons, to walk worthy of the calling we have received, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27, to live worthy of the Lord and to please Him in every way, Colossians 1.10, to live our lives worthy of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, worthy of the kingdom of God, 2 Thessalonians 1.5, or to act in a way worthy of the saints, Romans 16.2. And why else should the Lord Jesus, in teaching his disciples, lay such stress on the heroic element of discipleship, courage, sacrifice, high purpose? This is the authentic Christian discipleship, the man who sacrifices everything to serve the Lord. C.T. Studd, the pioneering missionary, was only being faithful to Jesus and to Paul when he condensed the spirit and the principle of Christian living into one memorable aphorism. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. But at the same time, how honest the Bible is in admitting that not all Christians serve Christ and the gospel as sacrificially and as faithfully as others. Not every believer is as devoted to the cause, as careless of his or her own comfort and ease as some believers are. And so there is this appeal so often in the Bible, this urging upon us higher and better things. And so there is this promise of reward, of the Savior's notice, of his requital, of all his servants' hard work, and all his soldiers' courage. How characteristic of the Bible to urge upon us all who believe in Jesus Christ a great life of accomplishment, of noble deeds, of self-sacrificing service. Christ is our Savior. He is also our example he left us an example that we should follow in his steps, says Peter. And what example did he set for us but that of a life of devotion to his heavenly Father's will, of great sacrifice willingly made on behalf of the gospel, of heroic effort to secure the interests of God first in his own heart 
and then in the hearts of other men and women of a short life of intense labor ended in exhaustion. Even before the incarnation of the Son of God, it was the inexorable logic of redeeming grace that those who were given to know the living God, to have their sins forgiven, to have received the promise of eternal life in defiance of their ill desert, it was the logic of that that they should then live in a way that adorned God's love and demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of God's gifts. The wise man who teaches us the way our lives ought to be lived in the book of Proverbs laid it down as a rule. The wicked flees though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. In the terrible times of persecution in the middle of the second century B.C., the righteous, Daniel said, long before the event, would show strength and act. Daniel 11.32. I like the King James Version translation better. The people who know their God will be strong and do exploits. And so they did. We read in 1 Maccabees that they chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the Holy Covenant. Many of them did die for their loyalty to Jesus Christ, God the Son. And the heroic resistance of those intertestamental believers, the sacrifices they made, the hardships they endured for their Savior's sake, won for them an explicit place in the hall of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. How could it be otherwise than the people who know the living God, the majesty on high, who know Him and love Him, should live their lives high above the ground? should attempt to and aspire to accomplish great things in the name and for the sake of their Savior. Why, the Bible from the beginning to the end is a record of great men and women whose exploits in the service of the King of Kings ennoble the Christian name and inspire the hearts of everybody who thinks that the love of Jesus Christ deserves a great love in return. The Word of God is in many of its pages the Holy Spirit's own commendation to us of such an aspiring life by showing it to us again and again in flesh and blood. Now I say again, Paul's appeal, frank, honest, searching, solemn, deeply theological as it is, is one that can strike the modern evangelical ear and mind as strange, even off-putting. The promise of reward for accomplishment can strike Christians as threatening to grace alone and faith alone. The thought of serving with some thought of reward may seem to them selfish and vain. And the implication of distinction based on accomplishment can strike anybody infected with the spirit of modern American egalitarianism as elitist. Some of this reticence we have we have inherited not from the Bible, but from our own culture. In certain ways, the whole notion of heroic accomplishment has fallen on hard times. The modern Western is not the Western of my youth when the hero against great odds saved the day and was always a man of character, upright, worthy. 
Now we have to try to figure out who the hero is and whether or not he is deserving of our praise and our admiration at all. In a culture that has made the principle of victimization fundamental to its public theology, the heroic ideal can scarcely fail to smack of heresy. The one who rises above the rest by reason of the commitment of all of his powers to certain achievements mocks the multitude who see themselves as the helpless victims of circumstance. The change at first was subtle. But now this viewpoint is the staple of our public discourse. I remember being struck by, it, uh, by the change at the time of the Iran hostage crisis during the Carter presidency. Those hostages in Tehran, we began regularly to hear referred to as heroes. So far as anyone knew, there was nothing particularly heroic about their conduct. They were, in fact, victims. They had not fought to prevent their capture and been overwhelmed in battle. They had not died rather than been taken. They had not endured torture rather than to reveal the secrets of the nation. No dishonor in any of that in their particular case, but the fact is they had simply been at the wrong place at the wrong time. But that was enough to make them heroes in the new way of thinking. The new hero is simply the very public victim. Nowadays, it has gone further still. To be a hero, one has only to fall into a well and have it take several days to get you out. In a day when we're no longer sure that men should remain on the Titanic so there will be adequate space for the women and children in the lifeboats, the one who is willing and determined to make the sacrifice of many things, even one's own life, for the sake of higher causes, must seem a reproach to the rest who have been taught that it is not only permissible but right to see first to one's own interests, to look out for number one, or, as we hear every time a professional athlete enters salary negotiations, to do what is best for his family, as if securing such immense sums of money could be said to be genuinely good for anybody's family. The hunger of men and women for heroes is, of course, not by any means extinguished in our culture. Human beings are made in the image of God who loves heroes, who makes heroes, and whose son was the hero of all heroes. 9-11 became an occasion for heroic accomplishment and the celebration of it in our culture. So a witness to Paul's attitude about life, however faint, however muddled, lives on in our life and in our culture, however conflicted about heroism and accomplishment we have become. But these things are too clearly and emphatically taught in the Bible for Christians to be muddled about them at all. God expects us, sinners saved by grace, to make something important and beautiful of our lives, and we are to set out to do so in the active expectation that the Lord will be pleased and will not fail to add his reward. There are Christians who excel and there are Christians who content themselves with much less than they might have been and they might have done. We are speaking of real Christians, people with living faith in Christ, with the grace of God in their hearts. Among them are those who fight the good fight and those who are saved, but only as those who escape through the flames. 
and many others who are saved but accomplish much less than they should and might have. In a culture such as ours, a culture that has so successfully inured its people against self-imposed hardship, against sacrifices that bring no immediate and tangible reward, it's only to be expected that the level of kingdom accomplishment is less than it has often been in the Christian church. I don't say that it is less than it has ever been. Surely not. But it is definitely less than it has often been. I've been recently teaching Caesar's Gallic Wars to my fourth year high school Latin class. And you may remember from your school days that at the beginning of his masterpiece, Caesar explains that the Belgae were the bravest of the three peoples that populated Gaul because they were furthest removed from the highly developed civilization of the Roman province and so were least often visited by merchants with enervating luxuries for sale. And nearest to the Germans, they fought with them all the time. How unlike the brave Belgae we are as a people nowadays. Caesar has provided an almost perfect description of our effete culture. Enervating luxuries in abundance and very little of that warfare that nerves and steals the spirit. Such has been America for many years and such has been its effect upon its people, Christians among them. Such has been its effect on me. And what does that mean but that we of all people, we American Christians, we Christians of the West, must pay a special attention to the Bible's summons to live lives of daring and difficulty and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. The adversary of the kingdom is the same. He has not stopped working just as hard as ever. His hostility to Christ and all his followers is unchanged. If the borders of Christ's kingdom are to be advanced, men and women will have to be strong and do exploits. will have to be bold as lions. So Paul's question comes to us in this existential moment, this seam in our lives between one year and the next. Will we make the effort? Will we apply ourselves to the work, come wind, come weather, as Paul urged Timothy to apply himself? Will you give yourself to your calling, whatever that calling is, without regard to your comfort or your ease or your name or your reputation or even your safety? Can you not think rather easily of what needs to be done in your life, in your service of Jesus Christ? I just read an interesting and rather depressing autobiography of Steve Martin, the comedian and actor. His life was marked, as were those of his mother and sister, in very sad ways by an overbearing, harsh, critical, and unaffectionate father. He tells of their eventual reconciliation, but only on his father's deathbed, when he confessed to his son that, his, that to his great regret, Throughout his life, he had received love, but had not given it. Is there a Christian father in this sanctuary this morning who faces the miserable prospect of having to say something similar on his deathbed? Of forcing his children to struggle through their lives as the aftermath of his fatherhood? Well, that's not to be the life of a Christian man. Absolutely not. Not of a husband not of a father. 
that must be changed. And it is to be changed no matter how much humiliation must be borne, how much effort must be invested, no matter how many failures must be acknowledged, confessed, and overcome. And are there wives and mothers here who must make similar sorts of changes? Paul here is talking especially about ministry, the impact of our lives on the lives of other human beings. And that, of course, begins in the family. No ministry bears such mighty consequences as the ministry of husbands and wives and parents. And there are so many other things to think about, things for all of us. Our witness to the lost, what we're doing to save souls, the mortification of our sins, the greater investment of ourselves in the lives of others, more faithfulness in the exercises of piety, public worship, the reading of God's Word, praying for ourselves and others, the spiritual nurture of our children, purification of our relationships, and it goes on and on. Whether in your case the difficulty that must be fought through is the fear of ridicule, or the love of ease, or of pleasure, or the desire for reputation, or an aversion to hard work, the great apostle is telling you that little enough will be done if you are not willing to push yourself. Demand of yourself the changes you know full well ought to come. In mathematics, they say, problems worthy of attack prove their worth by fighting back. In Paul's argument here, that is the burden of his remark as well. We might very well say, and truly, that we must look to the Lord for help to make more of our lives than we have so far. Without Him, we can do nothing. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. But here in this text, the text from which the Lord is speaking to us this morning, the point is rather that we must apply ourselves and do it and let nothing stand in the way. The race must be won. The fight must be fought. The faith must be kept. And you have to do that. Do it now or rue your failure to have done it later. What you cannot do as a Christian, what Paul will not allow you to do, what his argument takes from you the opportunity to do, is to throw in the towel or to refuse to take the action you ought to take in order to offer the Lord an unqualifiedly committed life and then count on God's grace to make it as if you had lived that committed life when in fact you did not. Peter, at the end of his second letter, urges us in conclusion to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He said the thing, same thing more specifically at the beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, when he exhorted us to add to our faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And then he goes on to say a most important thing. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough to have these qualities. 
in some degree or another. You must have them in increasing measure. One must see them grow and deepen and strengthen. And as a result, your life become more faithful and more fruitful. The new year beckons. The new beginning. The new opportunity it always brings. What will you make of it? Surely you should make something of it. And if you do, next time we come to this moment, this time next year, you will not be any longer where you were. But you will be thinking of taking another step, another step beyond the step you took in the days and the months that followed January 1st in the year of our Lord, 2008. Amen.